I'm Lieutenant General James Swift, Chief of Defence People, and you're listening to Veterans Work, the podcast, a series that explores the myriad of skills and talents that make veterans so valuable in business. Veterans Work, the podcast, grew out of Veterans Work, the UK's leading independent veterans employability campaign. All veterans start as service people, and as the Chief of Defence People, I am responsible for how we select, develop and transition are great people, and I strongly support Veterans Work. Hello, and welcome to Veterans Work, the podcast. I'm Kate Silverton. In today's episode, we look at the incredible quality of resilience, how time in the military can hone it and its application to the business world. I'm joined by Kate Philp, veteran, ambassador for the Soldiers Charity and Leadership Consultant, Matt Johns, veteran and director of Fieri, and Tony Harris, veteran and operations manager for Amazon. Well, welcome to all of you. I'd like to ask at the start, if I may, to just lay out for us your military career and give us a sense of colour in terms of your journey to getting to the point at where you are today. Kate, should we start with you? Sure. Um, well, Kate, thanks so much for having me. It's really really wonderful to be here and I think if I can start at sort of age five and it's not going to be a full history from then don't worry you can shut me up after 40 minutes um I've got this image in my head of a photograph of me with my eldest brother and we're both in um like kiddies soldier outfits and um I'd obviously nicked my middle brother's one and whereas my eldest brother has got this like beaming smile on his face I've got this grimace of determination so it's kind of hard for me to deny that you know I didn't want to join the army from quite a young age but for me it was um, about that mix of physical and mental I grew up with two older brothers quite a tomboy out in the countryside building dens with them and and then as I got older I think that sense of you know wanted to do something that I'd be proud of and and related to serving my country although obviously as a kid you don't really have that kind of sense I don't think so um, the com- combination of physical and mental and then the strong emphasis on team. Um, I loved being in any kind of team environment and that photograph reminds me that I was probably wanting to be the boss of any team that I was in. <laughs> so um, joined Sandhurst after uni, um, had an amazing year there, really tough obviously, but um, learned so much and made some incredibly good friends. Um, commissioned into the Royal Artillery, served for um, in total with, with Sandhurst for about 13 years, a couple of tours of Iraq um, and then one of Afghanistan and Afghanistan in 2008 was when I was injured. Um, so halfway through the tour, the vehicle that I was commanding ran over an IED, so roadside bomb, um, and sadly although we were in quite a heavily armoured vehicle, um, the, the, the bomb was big enough and, and hit at the sweet spot if you like, not so sweet for us sadly. Um, and as a result of that, we tragically lost one of the soldiers in the back and four of us were injured. And it's a, it's a really good demonstration of, of the sort of the typical um, result of an incident like that in terms of fatality and casualties and the range of casualties from a broken ankle from one of the lads in the infantry company that I was supporting um, through to um, me with losing one leg and, and one of the Gurkha soldiers losing both of his. Um, we were, you know, Kazavat off the ground, uh, spent an initial sort of 36 hours in Bastion Hospital where I later found out they thought they'd done enough to save my leg. So I came back to the UK with a big external fixation on it, um, had some surgery back in Birmingham, had a conversation with my consultant and he said, actually, your foot and ankle are, are pretty mashed. He described them as a jigsaw of fractures. So um, he told me that he could probably try and fuse the ankle, but I'd almost certainly be in pain on a daily basis and walk with a stick and again kind of casting my mind back to that photograph of the little girl that wasn't the future that she envisaged for herself and I was 30 at the time I thought no I've got a good bit of life to live yet so assuming there was an alternative I asked him what that was and he said well we'll amputate and you've got two main fractures one through the knee and one below so we'll try below first because obviously it's pretty handy to keep your knee if we can um, and I just remember asking him, okay, well, you know, with a prosthetic, will I be able to run, play tennis and ski? I'm not quite sure why I thought of those three and skiing was certainly more kind of outdoors than Antarctica. <laughs> um, but he just said yes. And I said, well, that's fine then. And I know that that sounds like a very sort of blase way of telling the story, but that is genuinely the conversation that we had because partly for me, it was about being able to make that decision and I could then own that decision. 
but it was also partly because I had confidence in the rehab journey that lay ahead. You know, I think we'll probably all feel the same, those of us who have been injured, that we're very lucky to have had Headley Court, as it was in my day, and now Stanford Hall, where you know, rehabilitation is second to none. Um, so I knew that I would absolutely be repaired as best as anybody could. So that took me through a period of about 16 months, a um, few trips in and out of hospital for revision surgery, um, a few stints at Headley Court to do my rehab, and then actually went back into service. So I think you know, a great example of how well somebody can be repaired and what options there are still available. Not the same for every person. Obviously, you know, my, my rank and my cap badge made a difference in terms of the variety of roles that I could still undertake. Um, but yeah, I carried on serving for about another seven years. So slightly longer actually post-injury than pre. And then left in 2015 and decided to set up on my own, sort of going into the personal development world, world of speaking and coaching, um, which was really what I'd enjoy most about my time in the army was developing my soldiers. Amazing. Um, you give me goosebumps actually when you speak. So to know that you're, because you're a qualified life coach now, a developed career coach, I don't know how you would describe it. So what, just on your day-to-day, before I bring uh, Matt and Tony, what, what, what do you do on your day-to-day now then? So, uh, so my business is uh, a mixture of keynote speaking and one-to-one coaching. So yeah, life and business coach is, is my qualification. What does that mean in practice? I like to think about opening up possibilities for people, put it in, it, in its broadest sense. Um, of course, that creates choice, and people are then quite uncomfortable often about making a decision between the choices they have, because that then involves taking responsibility for those choices. And it's something you know that I've already mentioned about. Something that I found very helpful was being able to have a choice and control, but for a lot of people, that's not the case. So I really like through both my personal and professional experience be able to guide them through that process and whether that's developing themselves professionally particularly perhaps in a leadership capacity because obviously that you know plays very closely to my professional background or if it's more to do with sort of personal challenges and and overcoming difficulties um those those are sort of the 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 key areas that that i work in great well we look forward to hearing what uh, you've got to share with us today then that's precisely why we are here in terms of taking responsibility of our own choices and seeing what might be uh, out there on offer for for another future career matt what about you how do you how do you follow that yeah <laughs> i was going to say that but i didn't want to <laughs> set you up yeah um so slightly different in terms of i didn't have any exposure to the military whatsoever um, I actually, uh, after uni, I went into journalism sort of very briefly and then realised it was the, the doing I wanted to do rather than sort of the, 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 sort of the, the narrating of it or the, the commentating on it. So um, I went over to uh, South Korea and Japan to cover the World Cup. Um, and whilst I was over there, the only other English speakers were, were American service personnel. And uh, at, at that time, it was not that long before that sort of September the 11th had happened and you know, geopolitics was sort of right in the centre of, of, of everything. And then seeing what they were doing, um, what they were training, what they were doing, that sort of sense of purpose they had, it made me look for the first time about going into the military. Um, so I went on, went on the internet, found out a little bit about it, ended up going through the, the tests to go to Sandhurst, and uh, ended up coming back to the UK and going to Sandhurst, not really knowing what on earth was going on around me. Um, so so not, not, not emotionally prepared for anything. And just to make it a little bit more surreal, um, I had Prince Harry in my platoon. So the first thing I saw as I walked into Sandhurst was Prince Charles walking along with his son. So I thought, uh, what am I doing? What, what on earth am I doing? So huge imposter syndrome, sort of a, a comprehensive school boy from South Wales, suddenly there, this sort of grand building, uh, going into sort of learning to be, a, a, be an army officer. And it was a really challenging, really challenging year for me, uh, but sort of very defining as well uh, about sort of learning about what I, could, what I couldn't do, what I wanted to do. Uh, I went on then to spend uh, 10 years in, in, the, in the Royal Signals as a regular officer, which uh, I really enjoyed. Um, didn't have sort of a, quite, quite as a, a, a challenging tour as sort of a KTAD. I sort of spent three, three different tours in Afghanistan, a bit of time in East Africa. Uh, but the, the most important role I did was going back to Sandhurst as a leadership instructor, sort of going through the, the full circle. And then that sort of really got me that passion for developing people, which is the part of the job I really enjoyed. So after that, going into um, sort of setting up uh, early stages of a business, doing leadership uh, training, which is what we're doing today. And tell us a little bit more about that before I bring to you. No, certainly. So um, one of the things at Sandhurst, which was just so rewarding, is seeing people like myself and that transformation over a year. 
um, and that, that's almost addictive, sort of trying to sort of see that development or be involved in it. Uh, and then seeing what was happening elsewhere, how that was happening in other businesses and sort of realizing, hold on, I need to get out eventually. I can't stay in the army forever. So if I get out now, I can have a second career. Not that I sort of fell out of love with the military at all. It's just, I, I wanted something that, you know, that stage of life where you start to have a family, you start to want to sort of stay one place, not, not move around every couple of years. Um, it just seemed like a really good option. Um, and I didn't really want to work for anybody um, ever again, having been in quite a confined environment of, you know, being told what to do, not having a lot of autonomy. So sort of setting up on, on my own or, or, or with a group of like-minded people seemed like the right thing to do. Um, and the bit about the, the Sandhurst training, which really, really sort of I saw had a big effect was the role modelling, seeing these sort of fantastic senior NCOs, senior non-commissioned officers um, who set the example and how important role modelling was. Uh, and the, also the experiential bit, the fact that a lot of um, the leadership training we saw commercially was about giving people the knowledge whilst we were really focusing on the skills and the behaviours, so put people in an environment where they have to uh, have to lead and then talk about it and see how you can refine them. So we, we built it around the experiential and the role modelling bit. So that's what we're still doing today. Wonderful and very successfully, although we'll come back to how uh, lockdown has uh, impacted on the business, of course. But again, another chance for you to show that resilience that we, we, we talk about. Yeah. But let's just bring you in, Tony, and hear how you've got to the point where you are today. I just, it, pretty much Kate and Matt have pretty much summed up my journey as well. <laughs> so uh, again, like Kate, I think, you know, right from the age of four, uh, I've got a strong family history in the military, or my father wasn't. Um, I've got three brothers. So, you know, he was playing army, we growing up, I had uncles in the military, in the French Foreign Legion, um, watching war films, all, all that sort of stuff. It just, all the way through my, my, my childhood, um, I knew it was what I wanted to do. Um, it was for me, uh, a lot of it was driven around the kind of courage element and the challenge, um, the competition. And as I got a bit older, a bit closer to the time, and I'd got uh, a bursary through the military at sort of 16 to, to go to Sandhurst, um, it really became about being that final moral line when the chaos and the order are uh, <laughs> right clashing against each other. It's mainly chaos. And you can be in the darkest of hours, you can be that moral light. And you can bring you know, people to safety, you can save people's lives, and you can try and do your best to do that. Um, a large part of it was about leading others. I'd always been more naturally inclined to lead um, through cadets, through sports teams, all, all the rest of it at school. Um, and I really felt like this was my, my, my calling. So um, unfortunately for me, I kind of, uh, in the late 90s, I decided that or Tony Blair made the decision for me, really. University was the thing you had to do, even though I was definitely not suited for university. So um, I did about a year there, and then um, joined Sandhurst uh, age 20. So um, obviously, clearly, didn't do the degree. Um, at 20, two days before Twin Towers got hit. So I joined very much with the idea that I'd probably be drinking gin in Germany or going to Northern <laughs> Ireland. That was basically two options. Um, I knew I wanted to join the infantry, I wanted to be um, in, a, in a combat arm and uh, things really came into a sharp focus with the, with the Twin Tower attacks. Uh, I spent the first two years of my career in the Fusiliers um, over in Northern Ireland, um, learning an awful lot about how to lead soldiers. I was very lucky to have joined an infantry unit and joined their fire support company, which is usually where all the old and bold, more um, challenging soldiers go <laughs> so you know straight from the get-go young 21 year old army officer you're being you know you're leading people who are a bit older than you a bit more uh, long in the tooth and cynical about military than you um, but I learned a lot and so in 2005 went out to Iraq um, and that was just the turning point in Basra where it was going from being benign-ish to suddenly having a lot more influence from Iran a lot more um, Risk certainly saw further north from us um, in Alamara, things were starting to heat up and then that was naturally seeping down to Basra. Um, and unfortunately in September of 2005, um, two of my soldiers, well, uh, one of my platoon patrols was caught up in a um, improvised explosive device ambush, uh, which killed two of my soldiers. Um, and that was, that was pretty hard. And I think a week later, uh, the call sign got hit again um, on their second patrol back out, uh, two of my soldiers lost a leg each and a officer in the back was killed. Um, 
Now I kind of hit a bit of a dark point at a personal level, not in professional level, but in a personal level, sort of a lot of what if. You know, what if we'd done this differently? What if we'd done that differently? What if? And um, it was actually my soldiers who brought me back from there. And I think it's one of the interesting things Matt was sort of talking about role modeling. The role models around you can not just above you, it's to your left, it's to your right, it's below you. You know, it could be children. I remember at Headley Court, and I'm sure Kate does as well. There's a young girl who'd lost her limbs through meningitis, and she was like charity fundraising for mm-hmm. Help for Heroes. And you know, you've got all these hurly burly, mainly, mainly guys, you know, people are trying to recover, and it's this young girl doing all this amazing stuff. <laughs> and you're like, wow, I, I wish I could be more like her. So, um, did another couple of tours of Iraq, and then out to Afghanistan a year after Kate to a place called Sangin. Um, which you know some people might be aware is pretty much the most dangerous place in Afghanistan. Um, I went with the Two Rifles Battle Group. Um, we had a company of fusiliers attached, and um, it was on May the twenty-first. Just been in a firefight out in the desert, um, trying to sort of stop the influx of, of fighters into um, into Sangin. And in the aftermath of that firefight, we'd attacked the enemy, and just afterwards, um, my vehicle, the second vehicle drove over a mine and uh, yeah just threw me exploded right underneath where I was sitting in the jackal vehicle um, the vehicle did a great job I mean soaked up all the shrapnel um, but the, the force of the blast was so huge it threw me about 20 meters from the vehicle um, I don't remember a thing about that um, I just remember talking to my driver and then waking up and looking at the bright blue sky um, wondering what had happened um, unfortunately um, you know the, the blast wave had shattered both my feet and I think when I'd landed, um, clearly I wouldn't have done very well at the Olympics in gymnastics and didn't nail it. And uh, snapped my left arm in half and I was bleeding quite heavily from um, probably my vein, I think, at the time um, that had been severed in that. And the guys, um, it was a really good example, I think, as well, of, of making sure that you empower your teams and that you devolve decision-making, devolve responsibility to the lowest possible level because you know, the leader, me in that instance, was out of action. I was conscious. I was trying to call over to the team. The driver sitting next to me, um, he hadn't even moved out of his seat. It was absolutely fine. Um, the gunner in the back, he'd been thrown out. He'd landed on his head. He was a Geordie, so he was fine. <laughs> and um, they just very calmly, the driver's on the radio, giving all the information, the grid reference, what had happened, everything, just very calmly. And the gunner behind didn't panic, didn't just rush in to try and get me, got the metal detector out and started sweeping very slowly the 20 metres. It took him two minutes to go 20 metres because they found six more mines between me and the vehicle. And you know, for me, that was that real moment. Was, you know, an 18 and 19-year-old not overreacting, staying calm in a crisis because we're trained, we're trained, we're coached, we're mentored, all those great things. And this is the thing we do in the military. We do a lot of training, we do a lot of mentoring all the time, even if we don't know we're doing it. And you know, they got to me, jabbed me full of morphine, um, the irony wasn't lost, being surrounded by opium. And, um, <laughs> you know, the helicopter came in, exactly like Kate then at that point, 36 hours, and I was um, surgery in Camp Bastion, and then back, and my daughter had been born two weeks beforehand, so it's my second child, I'd been born two weeks beforehand, and so it was going to be a reunion, I'd never met her, so I was going to go back, meet her, meet, see my family, my wife was really annoyed with me for getting <laughs> blown up. Um, and... Then it began that long journey, and um, sort of similar to Kate's, but I, I got an infection in my foot um, quite early on. And so I back and forth between Headley Court and Cellio Hospital in Birmingham. Um, multiple operations, I had about 30 operations, all sorts of crazy techniques. I started to see guys who'd lost their limbs. Um, Kate was actually there as well at the time. Um, you, know, you see people doing incredible things and being able to do so much, and there was me stuck in a wheelchair or you know, sometimes on crutches, trying to learn to walk before my daughter. Um, and it just wasn't going anywhere. It kept getting worse and worse. And uh, I went for an operation that didn't go well. I lost a lot of blood and ended up in intensive care. For me, that was a turning point. I, was like, I don't want to be defined by what I can't do. I just want to be able to get on with my life. I want to be active. I want to not be defined by my physical self, but by the person inside, the mental aspect and the values that I have as a person. And, and so it was, a, it was a pretty easy decision to go, look, take my leg, take my leg off. This means I can get back to where I'll be. And I know there are risks, I might be in pain, it might not go well, but they're better than the alternatives. And it was making that choice um, to do that, that then kind of turned me around, got me on the course for recovery. So I started working on a, a project to, to 
rally and race cars because you could use technology, you could use um, things around you, you could, you could compete against able-bodied people and that was important for me as well. And so we started that and so Race to Recovery was born and we did a Top Gear episode and um, started learning how to run a business and raise money and sponsorship and marketing and PR and finances. And um, yeah, we went, we took a team of 28 mainly injured service personnel with some civilian experts because again, you, know, you need a diverse team with lots of different skills um, to help you succeed. And yeah, we did the Dakar in 2013, January 2013. It was amazing. It's this incredible feeling. Of like, you know, so many people going get can't be done. You won't be able to do it. And you're like, well, okay, fine. You know, you think that, but I'll I'll bet I can, and I'll bet we can. And out of the back of that, I then competed in Invictus. Um, I did very similar things to Kate and Matt. Worked with Matt um, a lot, uh, doing kind of coaching, mentoring, helping others develop. And then for me, there came this real point where I wanted to lead again. I wanted to lead teams. I wanted to lead large teams, um, and so. You know, there aren't many teams you can get to or many businesses that are bigger than Amazon at the moment. So I decided to, to try my hand there in the operations side of things. And it was really a, a great moment. They're a company that value the, the military skill set, that understand the, the ability to, to put that into many different uh, verticals in the business, be it operations, customer service, whatever it is. And they'll find that strength. And I think one of the great things about the military is it is hugely diverse. There are a lot of people from a lot of different backgrounds with very different skills. And you need those skills lined up in the right places. And you also need to recognize what your weaknesses are, you know, where, where, what you're not good at, and make sure you've got people around you who are good at those things. Um, and so it's kind of putting that in place there and, and using that with my team and using that experience to say, look, there's, there's not huge differences between, um, between what we did, but also leadership is leadership. And um, it needs different styles, it needs different things for different times. And the benefit of the military is we get a lot of time practicing that, training it, and then really, really, really testing it. Thank you, firstly. Uh, but I was just sort of thinking, if we could just use that as a package to, as an advertising tool for any and all employers, between the three of you, I think we've just nailed it. <laughs> because if I was an employer listening to that, I'd be like, right, okay, if that's what it involves. Because I don't think I know that people don't fully appreciate. They might think that we understand the journey, but you've all had different journeys, but very similar in many ways. I just think, for me, you epitomise everything that we're talking about and why um, a civilian employer would think, I need those people on my team. If I'm listening to this and I'm serving or thinking I'm about to leave or if I've just left, I might be asking myself, they all sound pretty... Um, amazing, incredible, uh, you know, sort of forward-thinking types. When you're speaking to, when you're mentoring, what are the main questions, concerns, the main challenges that people have in making that successful transition? Is there an element of confidence about it? Is there an element of, um, I don't know, things that have come up, I think, in the past few podcasts have been around confidence, around understanding how skills actually translate in the civilian world. These are things that have come up. So if I could take you then and ask you, when you're mentoring, what are the things that you firstly feel that you have to address in helping with that successful transition? It's, you've got the answer is confidence. And that's not just people leaving the military. We, we do a lot of work with graduates, apprenticeships, people on high potential leadership programs who've already been identified to be you know, the future leaders of their organization. It all comes down to confidence. Um, and one of the values I think that we hold quite firmly in the military is humility. And I think sometimes that's a, a barrier to people actually thinking, hey, I, I'm a pretty capable human being. I'm not, not perfect, not me personally, I'm talking about you know, the, the, sort of the, the narrative for, for ex-military. I've done these things, I can, I can take on other challenges. And I think we often look for safety. We'll go to um, proven routes or we'll see what other people around us are doing, which is a quite natural thing to do. But I think um, a lot of people just need to take that moment when they leave and think, hold on, I can pretty much do anything. I've done all these great things and then just go for it. Take a little bit of risk. Just if you, if you mess up on your first career, then go and do something else. But we get this opportunity in the military, often leaving quite young to do something different. And it's an opportunity, not a threat. And the more you can think of it like that, the more you just follow your passion, whatever it is that you're gonna do. It sounds a little bit corny, but it's true. You've got that opportunity. You've got this 
amazing experience and training. You've got the support network, which is usually spread all over the place. You can just go for it. And uh, we focus a lot on where maybe it hasn't worked out. But, you know, I've, I, I'm aware of people who've gone on and studied all sorts of things completely different, working in sort of sustainability, um, working, doing incredible stuff in the third sector or, or, or go more proven routes like excelling in the city. But you can do pretty much anything and just realising that. Uh, and, and sometimes some of the things that are in place to help us in terms of career transition can sometimes push people onto the proven path when actually they sometimes need to break out a little bit and do something a bit different. I think one of the interesting things, I mean, I do some mentoring internally at the business, not just you know, for military people, but for you know, a lot of graduates as well and, and people at certain stages of their career. And I think um, there's kind of three core areas I touch on which I always try and get out early, which is tell me what your values are and be honest about those. What are they? And a lot of people don't think about this. They, they, it's not something they go through at school. It's not something they go through in careers. But really think about what you stand for. Does that, you know, is there a harmony there with the business you're in? And again, be honest with that business and, and what that business is, is doing. Um, you know, if, you've, if you're going to have a huge clash there, then, then that's probably going to be an issue. Purpose, uh, you know, it's a bit Baz Luhrmann, but um, you, know, you might not know what you want to do, but try and figure out, you know, like I was thinking about my purpose. So actually, I really enjoy helping others. I, that is something I really enjoy. It's something I enjoy in the military. It's something I enjoy at Amazon. It's something I enjoy um, at home. I enjoy helping my kids. I enjoy helping my kids' friends. You know, that is a big part for me. And finding my purpose in life is to do with that. It's not linked to my financial remuneration. It's not linked to my career per se. But it's an important part of it. And because I know that, I can then target where I want to go and what I want to do. Um, and I think the other one is, you know, particularly in and this is more relevant to the military, but not entirely, is recognise that you're not actually as resistant to change as you probably think you are. You know, in the military, we learn stuff every year. You, know, you go on an, a, a packet, training package for you know, how to do this. You know, it might be fighting in a built-up area. It might be a new vehicle or it might be whatever it is. Like, and that will involve new tactics and a new way. You'll get new camouflage, which means you have to do something in a different way. This is a huge amount of change. And recognize that when you get into the civilian world you can change a much faster and they will need to because there is at the end of the day a profit that needs to be driven there but it's also about doing things better doing things more effectively more safely um, it's about making conditions better and if you can kind of get that into your head that actually i can make an impact through through what i do then then i think that really helps you understand where you position yourself in the market and what you want to look for and recognize you'll probably make mistakes on the way as well well, I think we're so used to change, and that's one of the things to, to which which really helps with the whole sort of resilience factor, because in the military, you know, you're changing jobs every couple of years, which probably means a change of team, and probably means a change of location as well, and so that very sort of physical, practical change is something that we're incredibly used to, and it's not always the same in in civilian life. Although I think it's getting more so, people are moving jobs and moving organisations a lot more now. So to know that you've got that practical experience in your back pocket I think is, is really helpful and, and but it's it's recognizing that and, and knowing that that is a strength that you can bring and I think there's something as, as well for me about that clarity around why you're leaving you know what are the push and pull factors and there's usually a combination of both in terms of not necessarily what what's how is the military pushing you out but what what do you feel is pushing you out and, and wanting to leave the organization that you've spent a few years in and that has probably been pretty fundamental for you in shaping you as, a, as an adult um, and then what are the pull factors from civilian life that, that are attracting you out because I think if once you're clear about those you will understand what change you want which is which is informing the decision as to why you're leaving and it's something I mentioned before about then you know that that gives you that control over that decision and I think a lot of what I've seen of people leaving is there's the blaming other people and then there's the expectation that the path out will be done for you and it's just not the case and it shouldn't be because we're grown adults and you're looked after so well in the military that it can be a little bit of a shock when you leave that suddenly actually you've got to do everything for yourself regardless of how good an organization is how great their hr department or not is um, you know you you've got to take ownership of, of your decisions so I, I think having that clarity understanding what change you want to make will make it much easier for you to achieve that change and then as Matt said you know if it doesn't work out first time in, the, in your first choice of career do something about it 
make a change, try something else. We've all done it, we've all done a few different so things. So almost see it as, 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 you know, because you say change is, is practically part of everyday life. So just think, right, I will change and adopt that yeah. attitude, however uncomfortable it might feel yeah. initially. I can do it because I've done it before, mm. but also I'm doing it purposefully. You know, so come back to what Tony was saying, because I know what roughly what direction I want to follow. And resilience is, is key, Kate. You've just uh, mentioned it there. And for you, Matt, it's been a very personal uh, challenge in terms of the company over the past years. And well, just talk us through a little bit. Well, it was about not far from this time last year when uh, everything just ground to a halt. So um, we, we'd built up the, the business over sort of six years or so to a stage where all the hard work was sort of starting to pay off. Um, we, had, we had a really good team. Uh, we had clients who, who were very loyal to us and we, we had, had helped us grow and uh, Delight being one of them, of course. And we were in a stage where we were doing really good work, uh, really proud of what we were doing and had a very good team. Um, and it was just as things aligned that um, it, it, it all sort of ground to a halt. And I remember uh, getting to Birmingham Airport to, to run a course down, down in Herefordshire and when I turned my phone on, um, I had about 12 missed calls, which is really rare, not, not that popular. Um, and sort of it was a combination of a couple of clients and the people we worked with just saying, we've had the course cancelled. I said, oh, well, that happens. It's like, no, it's the course today. And then there's one next week and then one the week after. And then I was okay, that's strange. And it was something that came on the news that day about the lockdown coming in. Um, and within the space of two weeks, two years worth of um, programmes had just been sort of cancelled. So I was sat in the airport thinking, oh, okay, <laughs> what are we going to do now? And I got home just before, before the lockdown uh, kicked in. Um, and we, we had some really difficult decisions to make, uh, both on a personal and a professional level, um, because you can't just turn things off. You've got people to pay, um, bills to pay. And that was real test of resilience for everybody involved. Uh, and luckily our core team um, is all ex-military. And it was more of, it did feel like being back in the military at that time, where we assessed the situation. We looked, we, we literally looked at our courses of action. We got three courses of action we can take. Do we do this one? Do we do this one? And I did feel like I was back, <laughs> back there, sort of on a knee, sort of, right, right what are we going to do? Um, and uh, we, we, we were practicing what we preached. Uh, we, we were having to come up with a plan. We were having to execute it with a high level of risk. And we didn't do the easy option, which is just... Uh, a sort of a, a managed withdrawal, uh, sort of close everything down. Uh, we, we borrowed relatively heavily. Um, we sorted our personal finances out and invested in the, the technology that we thought would allow us to continue what we're doing, uh, taking a bit of a gamble that this lockdown was gonna last a little bit longer than a month. Um, and then looking at what things do we think are gonna continue. So we looked at government funded training. It's like, yeah, people are gonna want free stuff. So we made some huge assumptions about what was gonna happen. And about three, four months into borrowing a lot of money and making these huge assumptions, it was still completely flat. So we, we, we were still at the stage of maybe our sort of very bold and uh, expeditionary approach. <laughs> maybe it's going to come back and bite us. So we're literally looking at um, potentially selling houses or how do, we, how do we dig ourselves out of this mess? And then slowly but surely, um, it started to pay off. And we suddenly went from the problem of, I'm not sure how I'm going to be, pay the mortgage when the, the mortgage holiday finishes, to we need to recruit some people. <laughs> uh, we need to see who, who, who is sort of our, our, our network. We can sort of get back in quite quickly. We need somebody who can uh, do technology a bit better than us because we're terrible at it. So who's going to be available? Um, and a lot of the people we brought back in, as we've done earlier on, were ex-military. Um, and that backbone of people who can make decisions with limited information have the confidence to, to carry it through, uh, but also the humility to say when they get it wrong or when they need help, you know, big part of the tone you made. That core military backbone allowed us to get through uh, as, as an organization. And now as an employer, um, I'd rather train people who've got energy, who are willing to sort of take a bit of risk personally and, and throw themselves at something, rather than bring somebody in ready-made on the training side who doesn't sort of share that same uh, sort of it's sort of way of doing things. It also means it's a far more pleasant and exciting environment to work in where anybody can feel empowered because they're used to that mission command principle of, you know, this is what you're working in, just come up with the answers, do what you want to. It's such a more exciting environment when you've got people coming up with really good ideas or doing things and feeling empowered to do so. So the 
the training of Santos, the training of being in the military, all of that, I would say probably has been more useful in the last 12 months than for a significant part of my military career. And I know a lot of my colleagues feel the same way. It'd be interesting to see working in a big organisation like Tony, Tony has, whether that's sort of been quite similar. And it's also a reminder, as, as much as you know, hearing all of your incredible stories at the beginning, it's a reminder that, that, that each of your journeys has not been without challenge and things to overcome. And that even comes, as you've both mentioned, from psychological support too. So there shouldn't really be any barriers in that regard. And you've just mentioned that about not being afraid to ask for help. So Kate and Tony, in that regard, can I ask you just to share a little bit about that? Because it's not been a smooth journey to this point. You all sound terribly successful now. But the journey, you've had a journey the same as everybody else who might be listening, thinking, well, is it, you know, it sounds, it's not been easy, is basically what I'm trying to say. No, you're, you're absolutely right. And, but actually, you know, if we think about resilience, for me, it's sort of a, a tripartite thing in that it's physical, mental, and emotional. Um, and I think physically and mentally, I've, I've always been pretty strong, but emotionally, not so much. And, and actually, this isn't as a result of my injury. I think this is a result partly of just who I am anyway and kind of, no, no, suppress all that, you know, and let's just crack on. But of course, that was perfect for the army. And so the army, I think, has, and this is not speaking bad of the army, but I just think it sort of, it attracted me as that type and then probably encouraged and grew that behaviour. So asking for help is hugely important and it doesn't come naturally. And I'm sure I speak for the three of us when I say that, you know, is in that we as individuals are probably attracted to the army and, it, and it's attracted to us because of that. Um, you know, and, and, you know, you are expected to use your initiative, as Matt was just talking about, and crack on and identify courses of action and make decisions with limited information and be comfortable with that. Um, and what's not as comfortable is, as Tony was saying earlier about his experience of, you know, it took his soldiers to and say, boss, stop blaming yourself you know you had to have that help forced upon you didn't you and it has been much the same for me as well and it's recognizing that it's not weakness to ask for help um and i think often when you're leading others it's so much easier because you take the attention off you and you focus all of your energy on your on your soldiers um where as soon as you're forced to kind of put yourself in the spotlight again that's when it becomes tricky and the thing that really highlighted that for me, or the experience that highlighted that, was um, an expedition that I did to Antarctica as part of my rehab. And you know, I was just a member of the team. So there was no kind of being the leader and getting your leader's legs on and, and you know, putting, finding that extra 10% when you're having the most physically horrific time possible. Um, because, you, because you're only concentrating on you and there's no role modeling, there's no setting the example. Um, and that's actually a lot harder, I found. So, so focusing on self again is really difficult because we just don't particularly do it in the military. Um, and so learning to kind of reach out, identify what you need to ask for help for and who you can go to for that is, is a huge step, I think. And there's so much help out there. And even if that's just to the point of, as you're going through your resettlement process, starting to do that whole networking piece and I know it's a horrendous word that we all hate but it really works and it's really important and a re an early piece of advice I was given was don't worry about the whole like paying it back think about paying it forward and I've taken that with me you know over the last few years and and I love now making connections for people and, and reiterating that and saying you don't have to do anything for me in return but you will do something for someone else in the future. It's a really, really good point. Can I just throw in there? I went on an expedition to Antarctica as part of my rehab. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, as you I do. I mentioned I'm a bit emotionally unstable, right? <laughs> just, just extraordinary. Um, I want to mention storytelling, actually, because I think it's a really important um, thing for people to take away as well. And I've just lost what my last point was, what you just mentioned there. Um, the whole, like, paying it forward. Paying yes. it forward, thank you. Because I get that all the time. I don't think I know anybody who's ever received an email from anybody, and my husband included his former military, when someone reaches out and says, oh, could, I just need a bit of advice. Can I grab, you know, 20 minutes? Mm. I don't know. I've never said no to that. Mm. So I think it is, as you say, just reaching out mm. and just saying, can I grab, you know, I've got now three people that I mentor because they reached out mm. to me and just asked. And each of them said, I'm really embarrassed to ask. And I'm thinking this would be great. So mm. it's just, oh, sorry, Tony, I wanted to bring you in on that. Yeah, no, it's an interesting point. And um, 
you know, I, I definitely made time. I know, you know, at, certainly at Amazon, but also the wider military network. That's true, you know, get on LinkedIn, get on those, those other sites. People do want to help. Um, we've got massive, across the world, huge kind of military affinity group um, that kind of recognise, you know, there are certain things that veterans get, right? Relevant of what country you're from or whether, you, you know, countries are for each other or whatever. Like, there, there's certain things you get and understand. Um, I think one of the interesting things in the last year, and this is coming at it from a kind of big business point of view that's, that's done well, is that, the, you know, fragility is when you, know, you repeatedly put something or someone under stress and they end up breaking because of that stress, right? It makes it weaker every time. And there's another way of looking at it, which is actually, can I be someone where if you put me under more and more stress, I can actually learn from that, learn how I did well, learn how I responded, test myself and become stronger as a result. And that was something that we took um, on board quite literally early on in the pandemic. We knew that the demand would be going up for customers. We knew that people needed this support. And actually what was going to get people through the pandemic would vary massively depending on the individual. Right? It wasn't just a case of, you know, we need to send antibacterial wipes and face masks. It, you know, it's things, you know, it might be books, you know, to really help people. It might be coaching guides, it might be whatever it might be. Um, and therefore we needed to keep going, but we needed to do it safely. Um, so how are we going to protect our employees? How are we going to protect the or help um, the wider country and the countries we operate in um, get through this? And so the teams are all bouncing ideas and they're coming in from left and right of field, you know, this, this and this, and we can do these arcs. Um, we can put in place these, you know, how much does it cost versus, okay, actually, yeah, but do we need to do it? We need to do it now, right? Time's pressing, let's move. Um, and we implemented a lot of new processes. And initially it might be that they were going a bit more slowly than we hoped, or it might be that they needed to be tinkered with and this isn't quite perfect. But again, it's that sort of, there's a military ethos of like, you know, 80%, I need 80% of, of the information, I'm good to go. Because you know you're never gonna get to 100%, so let's just meet somewhere and make a decision. And we did that, and we're now at the point where we've got all these COVID protocols in place. We've done a huge amount uh, as a business, as a leadership team, and, and the associates themselves, what they've, gone through to make it safe. We're operating at maximum capacity to try and support what people need and do it as safely as possible. Um, and actually some of these processes have, been, have improved on what we had before pre-pandemic. And that makes you then realize, okay, you know, again, change and challenge can make me stronger, can make us better because it presents us with different opportunities and different challenges, different obstacles we have to overcome. Exactly what you went through in the military. You know, you go left flanking, nah, the enemy are there, I need to go right. You know, I need to call in some help from, from Kate's bunch and the artillery, you know, I need that now. You know, you, you've been through these things before, it's just they were wearing a different costume. Um, so, you know, my advice to, to, to the veterans, I'm not necessarily soliciting it, but um, my advice to them is, you know, look at the processes that you're using, not the exact output or inputs that you're putting in place. Um, you know, the military, we're incredibly poor on data. We don't do data very well in the military. But actually, if you think about it, there are lots of things, lots of stories, and stories is where it's at, stories is what drives humanity forward. There are lots of stories of where you have used your intuition, you have used factors you can see, and when you're doing a plan, you have used data. You've analysed what's in front of you, and you've made a plan based on that data and that information that's been presented to you. So you can do it, and you have done it. And there might be new skills like Excel, we don't, you know, very basic in the military, generally speaking. You know, there's lots of skills that you might have to bone up on and improve. But the way that you make decisions, the way that you look at information is hugely relevant to a successful business. Yeah. I think part of the problem, Kate, if I may, is, is actually less often from the veteran side. Because, you know, there is a certain amount of help to identify this, you know, when you're going through resettlement and when you're leaving the military. Um, so a lot of this is perhaps stuff that you know that people have heard before but I think on the flip side of that from the employer's point of view it's really getting them to recognize that all the soft skills which is basically what we've been talking about are are born of years of training and experience and you don't get that from you know any person that walks in off the street so that is the advantage I think that people from a military background bring to you you know the, the sort of the hard technical skills so when you're looking at prospective CVs and you know you say well this this person's got this qualification so I'm going to take them over this ex-military 
it's so, so short-sighted in my view because you get somebody in with the soft skills that you're not going to be able to train them up on that in a three-week course but you can send them off on the three-week course to do that technical qualification and the value that you'll get out of that individual because of all of their soft skills years experience will be realized so much more quickly than the technical person who hasn't got the leadership and, and, and management that we bring. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I mean, recognizing, and this really does touch on soft skill, the, you know, not only the effective listening, but the, the ability to read what type of person is needed in a situation. Right, so you can go from, I need to be the stern leader who's just dictating, like, this needs to happen now because it's a crazy day and I need to put some order into it. Or, actually, I need to be an empathetic leader right now and I need to listen. I just need to pin my ears back and listen. And like Kate said, you've been through those examples before. You've done those repeatedly. And, and therefore, your ability to be a malleable person, a malleable leader, based on the situation rather than just fixated on something is is there in spades and it's um, a wonderful asset to, to an employer to have someone. I think it's key is that translating that is conveying mm. that isn't it mm. so you, as you've said employers need to be aware of it and then also we as individuals need to be aware of it in terms of what we are bringing um, with with CV so as we draw to a close let's see if we can drill down if I can ask you we've covered so much ground but what three points from each of you would you like people listening to take away feel free whether you want to direct it at the employer or whether the prospective employees we should maybe put it but what three points would you like people to take away who are listening I might add my first one which is just storytelling listening to the three of you at the start of this podcast for me was the most powerful thing I think I could have heard if I was an employer to think wow you've you've done all of that I would then be asking myself, how can I bring you into my organization? Because I know you're going to bring <laughs> a wealth of experience and knowledge and skills. It's my responsibility to see how I can um, you know, to utilize that. If, if So I think te don't be afraid to tell your story. It's obviously what I do in communications it's sort of within television. It's the most powerful thing we can do. So your experience, and talking to people listening, your experience is really absolutely what counts. So don't be afraid to tell your story. That's my little two points. Margot first, ladies first. <laughs> uh, just in case you nick mine. Um, I, th I think my three would be first two from the from the veterans point of view which should which is first of all that clarity about what change it is that you want we talked a lot about change today and when you're leaving the military it's because you want some something different so what is that what change do you want to see because that then helps you to um to, to achieve your goals to achieve that change secondly would be about not being afraid to ask for help um and then thirdly from the employer's perspective it, it picking up on what you were just talking about, Kate, actually helping those ex-military candidates to tell their story. You know, so having a, you know, so educating yourself around, you know, what you think an ex-military person can bring for you, but then really allowing them, kind of giving them the floor to, to tell their story. Matt? I think to the person leaving is that, that boldness, that audacity, that tenacity that got you to go in the first place to stick your hand up and say yeah I'm going to do that for a few years of my life you've got to get that back and realise that you can turn that to absolutely anything and it's just be bold you're going to get out and the army will or, or the military will always be an important part of your identity but don't let it define you completely put it to one side use it keep it almost like your secret weapon um, and then think how else am I going to make my mark and move forward and the people I see succeeding have done that. They're really proud of what they've achieved. They've always got those links. They'll always use it for the network, but they'll go forward and there'll be a success in something else. And having that self-efficacy, that understanding that, gosh, you've already excelled. You've already put yourself on a pedestal for pursuing that career. You can do it in anything else. And just remembering that, uh, I think it's really important. And um, I, I think from the employer's point of view, you'd be absolutely nuts not to, pack, not to tap in to this ridiculously trained, motivated, high energy group of individuals. And from my point of view, I'm really happy that there's only a few organizations, I think Amazon be one, Deloitte maybe being another, who've actually tapped into this almost like goldmine of, of talent. And organizations that aren't doing that are really, really missing the trick because you've got a highly trainable, highly adaptable, highly motivated workforce, um, and there's plenty of them. So, you know, wh why wouldn't you? Um, and I'm going to go for two, not for three, I'm afraid. I'm just going to break the mould a little bit. I can't think of a third. <laughs> Beautiful. Thank you, Matt. 
I think um, this goes to both the individuals and um, the employers as well. I think first and foremost, you know, we're in a group where you're, you're veterans or you're about to become a veteran or whatever. But first and foremost, you're an individual and you will have strengths and you will have weaknesses. Understand what those are. There are guys and girls I know who are fantastic artists and they serve. There are soldiers I know who made a lot of money while they were serving playing the stock market and you know, just a private soldier because they have an inkling for it. Like, recognize that we are an incredibly diverse range of people with different skills and different passions and not just a single homogenous mass that is you know, trained as some sort of clockwork machine um, because that's not what, what the military is. It's not, it never has been. You, know, you just look at history, look at the First World War and the poets that came out of it, look at the artists. You know, we're a really diverse group of people. Um, I think, secondly, to the, um, to the veterans, and this touches on, on what Kate says, is for me it's about recognise that you might not understand your purpose, but try. try. And you will make mistakes on that path, you won't get it right every time, but work towards what that is. Um, for some people, it might really be the, 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 the work that is it. It's that precise bit of work. But for others, it might be a feeling, it might be an emotion, it might be some sort of state of being that you want to be in, you want to be that person. You know, for me, it's you know, to help others. Um, and I think finally to, to employers is, I know that there is some degree of skepticism, some degree of um, unknown with the military, and I think that sometimes gets pushed around the sort of mental health, PTSD element of things. I think, again, recognize that most people who've served don't have that and don't present it. There might be other mental health issues and whatever, but no more than the, the rest of the population. So please don't let that be a barrier to what, you know, why you would hire someone. We do not all come um, with, with, with mental scars. Some of us come with physical scars. Not many of us, again, as a population, as a percentage of the population. So look past that and recognize that um, the, the skills, the experience, and the, the abilities that we can bring to your business will be told through our stories. They might not be data rich, they might not have all the vernacular that you want them to have, but nonetheless, they will be gripping stories that, that can really, really improve your business and, and, and push you forward to success. Well, thank you so much to my guests today, Tony Harris, Matt Johns, and Kate Philp. In our next and final episode, we'll take stock of where we are with veteran employment, the progress that has been made so far, as well as looking to the future. I hope you'll join me then on Veterans Work, the podcast. Bye-bye.